I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Dick Grace of Grace Family Wines on the show. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm doing great. Never better. Nice to have you here. Good to be here. So you actually grew up in Hawaii for part of your life. Very first part. I was actually born in Hawaii in uh, 1938. And uh, one of the interesting things is that my brother and I watched Pearl Harbor from our tree fort. Not just the base, but you actually saw the battle. Well, we didn't. I think I did. I'm not sure if I created the memory or it's actually imprinted in my mind, but I do have a memory of it. My brother and I were actually up in the tree fort on Sunday morning, and my brother noticed this commotion down at Pearl Harbor, which was probably five miles as the crow flies. Went down and got my mother and father. They got up into the tree fort, and my father hypothesized that uh, the oil storage tanks were blowing up for some reason. And then a uh, Japanese aircraft crashed just uh, 50 meters in front of our front door. There was a crashed plane in front of your house. That's correct. Yeah. And how long did you live in that area? Well, actually, my parents were convinced that Hawaii would be occupied. And so we made for the mainland uh, in 1942. We moved from a very naive community and society to a very affluent area, which was Piedmont, California, in the Bay Area, the San Francisco Bay Area. Oh, okay. So we grew up in the same spot then. Because I went oh, to really? Skyline High School. <laughs> oh, there you go. Well, I went to Piedmont High School, just barely. Yeah, we were better at school. I, I'm, uh, I'm I kidding. Don't think I'm so. totally no, no. kidding. <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> you could have been better than me easily. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. you, you weren't the best student. I was not the best student. But yeah. you popular kid? I was. Uh, you know, I loved athletics. And in those days, I loved people as I do today. And uh, that was a long time ago. I think I graduated from high school in uh, 1956. What was the 50s like in California? Well, I defined my life by athletics and kind of the macho lifestyle, to be honest with you. I played a lot of sports. I was probably a B in, in uh, several sports and never an A in anything. But I loved sports. I loved competition. I loved athletics. I think it was a very simple time compared to nowadays, not nearly as complex with a lot more downtime and, and uh, probably not nearly as much busyness. 
your parents weren't always on their phones checking their emails and stuff like that. Uh, they were. I can remember my original phone number was Piedmont five five seven five two J, and we had shared a line with another family. Yeah, so there was no such thing in that era. You really did have one of those party lines. We had a party line. We had to uh, pick up the phone and see if someone else on the other line, the other family was using it. And if they didn't, we hand dialed wherever we were. It's sort of a beautiful area, Piedmont, in the hills there. It is a nice area. It's a, an affluent area. And frankly speaking, we didn't really belong there from a financial standpoint. Uh, I worked in high school. There wasn't a lot of fellows that worked in high school. I worked at the Shell gas station down at Grand and Wildwood. And after athletics every day, I'd head on down there, get there at 6, work till 10, and start the same procedure over and over again. It wasn't an easy ride for you as a kid. You oh, I think that. it was easy. No, I think it was easy. Yeah. I think it was cool. To stay busy. Yeah, yeah. I love, I love staying busy, and I love people. And uh, yeah, I know it, it was an easy ride. Did you drink wine right away, or did that come later? No, I drank. No, I didn't at all. I was a beer drinker. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Most people probably were. Yeah, well, I was until uh, 27 years ago when I drank up, uh, gave up drinking any alcohol whatsoever. Right. right, which is a big part of your life. Yeah, yeah, it was, and I kind of defined my uh, uh, my life by a six-pack or whatever it was, and uh, it was part of winning at athletics and part of losing at athletics, and my brother had the same predilection. It was an omnipresent part of your life, drinking it was. beer. It was. And you decided one day, much later, that was enough. Well, you know, I decided uh, that was enough 250 times. Uh, but the problem was I started up again 249. And so consequently, uh, for a control freak like myself, it was pretty frightening to no longer enjoy something but be uh, unable to give it up. I guess that's the definition of addiction. It was a compulsive behavior. It was. A, yes, it was. So you really never drank wine? Uh, I didn't drink wine very much until after I got out of the Marine Corps, probably when I was in my 30s. Yeah, yeah. An occasional glass of Thunderbird or Ripple or uh, Big Daddy Real Grape Wine, something yeah, like that. Sure, sure. But yeah. that, that was the style in those days. It yeah. wasn't like that was unpopular. I mean, that's what no, people did. No, that, right? that was it. That was it. Almaden was upscale. Right, that was the fancy brand. Palmason, yeah, there you go. No wine before it's time, right? There you go, <laughs> exactly. So you go into the Marines, and then that seems to have moved your life into a certain arc. It did. It did. Um, actually, when I uh, went in the Marine Corps, I was terrified. Um, I went uh, to the equivalent of boot camp back at Quantico, Virginia, and um, it, basically it was resolve that, uh, that made it through for me, and I learned a lot about discipline. And I learned a lot about what I call taking the hill. Uh, I was quite competitive, and uh, I wanted to have what the people on the hill of Piedmont had. And uh, we didn't have it. You know, I was one of the few guys that worked, as I said, and I uh, did my athletics and things of this nature. I think I got the subconscious message that if I got what the people on the hill had, I would be eternally happy. I was injured, not in combat, but in training just prior to Vietnam, really heating up in December of 1963. And that drummed me out of the Marine Corps. I was four months either in or attached to a hospital at that time. And um, I had a, a small note in my pocket during my time at Oak Knoll Naval Hospital in Oakland, California. And uh, it was to go see a man by the name of Buzz Mills, uh, 120 Montgomery Street, heart of the financial district. So I went up in my Marine Corps uniform and 
went up to Mr. Mills's office and his receptionist was there. And I said, I'd like to make an appointment to see Mr. Mills. I really didn't have too much of an idea what he did for a living. And she said, oh, he's not busy. Uh, you can stick your head in right now. And I, so I went in and introduced myself and he was a great fan of both Marines and athletes, although he'd probably never been either. And I walked out with the job at Bates & Company. Um, No resume, no nothing, just a handshake. And uh, started a career in the brokerage business, and I was quite lucky. Who put you two in touch? Uh, It was an old friend by the name of Don Fowler, a a grand guy in in Honolulu who was a fraternity brother at University of California, Berkeley, uh, before I uh, elected to go down to Oakland Junior College, or they elected for me that I might do better at Oakland Junior College, and uh, a fellow who I stayed in contact with, and uh, Golden Gloves boxer and all that type of stuff, and just quite a character. When you were in that hospital, what was on your mind? How to support my family. Yeah, yeah. And uh, how to get going after uh, two children. Uh, no real uh, savings of any kind. And uh, yeah, that was what I was thinking about is how do I get the ball rolling? And Buzz Mills, fortunately, started the ball rolling. So you got that job. And it seems like you made a fair amount of money. I was very lucky. Yeah. Um, I love people. Uh, I believe in what I'm selling. And um, went through probably more good fortune than, than intelligence or anything and uh, happened to do very well at the brokerage business. It was a good time to be in the business. It was a great time to be in the business. The business has changed dramatically since I was first in. They wouldn't probably accept me at most places right now because I was literally a stock jockey. And I wanted aggressive capital for people who are willing to make much more than the average return on the stock market. So in essence, what I did if I was successful... I made uh, wealthy people wealthier, and if I was failing for a certain period of time, I made uh, wealthy people sleepless at night. But when you made a lot of money, it didn't seem to bring the rewards that you thought they were going to come. Not nearly. Um, I think when I worked at the gas station, I got the message, either consciously or subconsciously, that if I got what the people on the hill had, I would be forever happy. They had money and cars and and memberships to Claremont Country Club and uh, fine clothes and ability to travel, and none of which my my parents enjoyed. I can remember, uh, I did play golf on the golf team, and I can remember going out to Claremont and being a caddy and seeing several of my fellow members playing golf on uh, Saturday and Sunday. So there's a very obvious divide, and you took this job and you made the money and you thought, well, I'm going to live that kind of life that I'm going to have the smile that those people had. I'm going to have the enjoyment they had, but there was something missing. Well, I learned that the smile was uh, strictly superficial. That's for sure. That's the first thing I learned. And secondly, I learned another interesting lesson, and that is that you can purchase pleasure, but you can't purchase happiness. You know, you can purchase a great bottle of wine. You can purchase a cashmere sport coat. You can purchase a a trip abroad, a fine dinner at a three-star restaurant. But that doesn't necessarily bring happiness. And I think the difference between pleasure and happiness is is a a significant difference. So at some point, you decided to take a trip out to the Napa Valley, and it was more more like a day trip. Right, right. Uh, In uh, December of 1975, uh, and my wife of now 57 years, and uh, two other couples went up to the Napa Valley, which of course was completely different then. And we ended up at Fremark Abbey uh, Winery, from which we now live less than a quarter of a mile away. And we visited, and there was a very gregarious Texan as the tasting room attendant by the name of Mike Richmond, who I believe just retired as CEO of Bouchain Winery. 
And we had a wonderful time in December of 75. And he said, in uh, January, we're going to have a Zinfandel tasting and you and your wife ought to come up. And as a matter of fact, there's a brand new inn just uh, 200 meters away called the Wine Country Inn. You could spend the night there. We said, sure. And just the two of us came up and spent our first night ever in the uh, Napa Valley. We went to the wine tasting and it was very interesting. And the next morning we were having a coffee with the uh, owner of the just brand newly completed inn. And uh, he made small talk with us like an innkeeper would. And after maybe three or four minutes said, uh, you know, I'm going to be doing some real estate now and uh, you'll have to excuse me. Oddly enough, his name was Ned Smith and he is the father of Jim Smith who uh, started Hourglass Winery. Uh, he excused himself from the table, walked about 10 meters away and came back. He said, you know, you might like to take a look at the uh, property. It's less than a mile away and uh, it's in terrible condition. It's a Victorian uh, completed in 1881 and has lots of potential. And we said, sure, why not? With absolutely no idea of moving to the Napa Valley, zero. Got in his Chevy truck Drove out to 29, did a left, drove 300 meters, did a right on to Rockland uh, Drive, and halfway up the uh, driveway, I had a feeling which I didn't believe existed and I had never had before. It was uh, that we would end up there. And um, I thought those type of intuitive feelings were reserved for maybe the hippies at Berkeley uh, smoking marijuana or eating funny mushrooms. We looked at the property for 15 minutes. I had a one-minute conversation with Annie, hopped in the Chevy truck, got halfway down to Highway 29, and said, Ned, we're going to buy it. Uh, Ned stopped the truck so quickly, almost went through the windshield. Went back to the wine country inn and uh, made a bid on the home that evening, which was accepted the next morning, so we knew we paid too much. Uh, and told our youngsters, who were then 15, 13, 11, are now 55, 53, 51, that we're moving to the Napa Valley. Our oldest, uh, Kirk, who's now director of vineyard operations for Stag's Leap Wine Cellar, said, well, Dad, what's the Napa Valley all about? And I said, it's about agriculture. And I had no agricultural experience whatsoever. I'd never put anything into soil and didn't plan on it, quite frankly. I wanted, to, I wanted to get away from a golf, tennis, and cocktail party mentality. Uh, we, in, we were told that there was a wonderful school in Napa, Justin, to send our youngsters to, but we elected not to. We sent them to the public school in St. Helena, which was about 35% Mexican at the time, because we didn't want just an academic education. We wanted an education for life, and I, I think maybe they could have done better at Justin, but not as well in, as an education for life. All three subsequently went on to universities and graduated, and we're very proud of all three of our youngsters. But I think that those years at St. Helena High School were a significant impact on the children as well as myself and my wife, Anne. You wanted a lifestyle change. I guess I did, yeah. And I, and I loved it, to be very honest with you. I've uh, always been extremely interested in people who do crafts and the best they can and are proud of their work. Uh, be that person a, a wood carver, a shoemaker, a knife blade manufacturer or whatever. So when I moved to the Valley, we had no intent whatsoever of, uh, of getting into the wine business. In about April of 76, uh, I was having lunch with my new friend and still friend, Mike Richmond, and he said, you know, Dick, that front one acre would make a wonderful vineyard. It was planted uh, to an old olive orchard. 
And I said, Mike, I've, uh, I've never had any experience with agriculture at all and didn't plan on it. And he said it would be a wonderful adventure. Well, the word adventure to my wife and I and almost our entire family is an extraordinary word. And uh, we usually seize the adventure. So I approached the people who owned the house. We, uh, we bought it in uh, January to uh, close escrow in June. And I said, look, could we uh, get advantage of the full growing season? take out the olive trees, replant as many as we could, sell the, uh, the balance, and then prepare the ground for a vineyard. And that was back in the days when people trusted one another. And they said, sure. So we started off and uh, about three things happened at that time that are still very important to us. Number one, Mike Richmond said that grapevines were like people. And if you make them struggle and stress and come to the other side, they have finer character. Now, to anybody who spent years in the Marine Corps, that makes a lot of sense. So I said to Mike, well, how do you make grapevines struggle? He said, you plant them closer together and you don't water them as often. I said, well, why doesn't everybody do it? And he said, because of the difficulty of mechanical cultivation and the lower yield, I said, look, it'll never be anything but a hobby. So let's do it. You hadn't planned it to be a commercial venture. No way. No way. And uh, so... We planted the vineyard, and to my memory, probably about 600 vines on a slightly larger than one-acre space would have been normal, and there's now 3,400 vines on that same space. But originally, it wasn't that many. You replanted later, right? That's correct, but originally, it was at least triple or quadruple what was normal at the time. Then also, it made sense just to keep herbicides and pesticides out of the vineyard. Uh, and so we made that decision. So I think we probably the oldest organic vineyard in the Napa Valley, although at the time I didn't even know the term organic. Because uh, it was in front of your house and it wasn't a commercial venture. So you just didn't need all this extra help from the chemicals. That was it. Yeah. It just made more sense to keep the land a little bit pure, et cetera. And then the third, uh, which is still in effect until this day, except for this year's harvest and probably three other exceptions. We've had family and friends do every harvest. Your friends come over and help you pick the grapes. Most every time. And the group has gone from 12 the first year to most normally about 100 uh, people show up for harvest day. 100 people come. That's correct. Yeah. Well, how big is the vineyard now? Well, we've harvested a total now of three acres, two of which we own, and one is a contiguous property planted to our clone and farmed to our standards. So we... All of Grace Family Vineyard's production comes from three acres. And originally, you'd source vine material from Fremark Abbey. I did. Presumably because you had visited. That's correct. And so we had access to the Beauchet clone of Cabernet. And when I was drinking uh, wine in those days, the 68 and 70 Beauchet and the 68 and 70 BV Private Reserve were two of my very, very favorite wines. For the first roughly half of our vineyard life. We used to pray to get the picking sugar, which we defined as 23.4, 23.6. And we often picked ahead of that because the grapes were getting desiccated, uh, the flavors were fully developed, the seeds were brown, and to go any longer would have harmed the quality of the wine. So we picked earlier than we should have from the standpoint of bricks. Um, somewhere around 15 years ago, things started to change pretty dramatically. And I think it's still a major battle in the Napa Valley right now. And that is that the wines are, are coming upon picking sugars very early, 
far before the flavors are developed. The BBs are, uh, I mean, the berries rather are BB hard. The seeds are green. And so there's been a dramatic change in the challenges of keeping a wine below 14%, which we have done every year. And it looks as though we'll be very close this year and might slightly exceed it. I guess my question would be mid 70s comes around. You hadn't really drunk much wine. You had a new property that you hadn't really purchased with any commercial intent that really you hadn't picked to make wine. And you planted vines. It sounds like mostly on the enthusiasm of, of a friend. We really did. I, I've been to many people's dismay in an intuitive thinker my entire life. The more I work on a problem, the more I try and figure it out, the worse it turns out. And I get a feeling and an intuition about things, and um, I pray for the courage to be the person I really am. So I usually act on that. And so a lot of people give us credit that I'm not really due, to be honest with you. Starting the first cult line, which is kind of surprising. My mother was terrified I was going to join a cult when I was in college. But, um, you know, my first thing is is have the courage to be the person you really are. And so we wanted to uh, follow those uh, goals and those desires. And, and uh, I listened to my heart, basically. We never did a soil study. We never looked at multiple rootstocks. We never did all of the things that so many people are doing so scientifically now. It was really done on intuition and feeling. And it must have been a very different valley in terms of who was there and how many wineries there were. The wine, uh, the business was so different in that period of time. I, I'm not very good at statistics, but as I remember, there were 50 to 60 bonded wineries. I think there's uh, well over 600, 700 now. I, I can't even count. It's interesting to note that when we released our first wine, the wines were made down at Camus from 78, our first vintage, through 1986. 85 and 86 were bought up to our winery, which was completed in time for the 87 harvest in Cooperage and finished there. 1987 became our first estate bottled wine. In that period of time, the valley was dramatically different than it is now. Think that those of us who were of that era, um, the folks at Spotswood, the Novak family, uh, the Davies, uh, um, the Lales, and so many others, I don't think that we looked upon a winery as a badge of honor, quite frankly. We kind of looked upon a, wi a winery as an expression of your values, an expression of your time. I don't think many of us, certainly not ourselves, put pen to pencil and tried to figure out the long term. I certainly didn't. Uh, and so it was basically um, um, a mission of the heart in a lot of ways. And we had a wonderful community. The people who have come in recently in some ways have a different motivation. However, I will say they've given the Valley a great gift. Uh, they've kind of uh, shaken us old timers up and made us realize that there are techniques and equipment that's probably better than that which we had been using. So they have given us the luxury, certainly of a wake-up call, and many of them are making marvelous wines right now. So who are some of the people that you used to see in the Valley in the mid-70s when you planted that vineyard? I mean, who are some of the people who are around that you would run into? Well, certainly the folks over at uh, Fremark Abbey, uh, Chuck uh, Carpey and, and Ann, uh, Robin and John Lale were around, the Davies up the road at Tramsburg doing this uh, champagne-style wine. We saw them regularly. Uh, Charlie Wagner was a, was a good friend. Uh, there was a whole collective of people that were, were really bound together by the wine industry, and it wasn't quite the social scene that you have now. I think the real gathering place was a, a spot in Yonville called The Diner. 
It was everybody's hangout on Friday night and uh, a lot of fun and a, and a great meeting place. And those types of places are, are pretty hard to find right now in the Napa Valley. What were those kind of parties like? Oh, they weren't parties. They were getting together and you'd see maybe five to 10 family winemakers there or winery owners and things of this nature. And we were always uh, uh, just greeting each other. And they, you know, we didn't have the the emphasis of... Uh, on uh, on the wine quite to the degree right now we're so focused on wine i love going to italy um i love going to italy and one of the reasons is the winemaking areas when you talk to italian winemakers all but the most visible they're very proud of their wines and they're proud of their olive oil and they're proud of their tomato garden and they're proud of their pizza oven and they're proud of their the, the herbs and spices they grow on their property and they're not quite as single-minded as we tend to be in the Napa Valley about uh, just this one product. You know, life has a lot of dimensions to it. And certainly wine is a wonderful accoutrement to celebration and contemplation and things of this nature. But there are other things. The first vintage was 78, and mm-hmm. you must have developed a, a relationship with the Wagner family that they would vinify it at Camus. Yes, very much so. I had a very good relationship with Charlie Wagner. Uh, Chuck, his son, was a youngster. Uh, John Volta was the cellar man, and Randy Dunn was uh, an advisor there as well. And so people ask me who made our first wines. Well, it certainly wasn't me, but it was some combination, which to this day is a mystery to me, of uh, Charlie, Chuck, Randy, and John. They were originally bottling it as Camus Vineyard and mm-hmm. then Grace Family Vineyard. That's correct. We had uh, a vineyard designation on the Camus label from 78 through the 82 vintage. At that period of time, I can only recall about eight or nine uh, vineyard designated wines, the most popular of which was obviously Martha's Vineyard at Heights. Uh, and there was Bacchus, and there was Isley, and there was Beauchet, and there was Grace Family, et cetera. And in those days, those properties had a uniqueness of character, and a wine aficionado uh, could probably tell the difference between these various plots of land, some down in the Stag's Leap area and some up as far north as north of St. Helena. People began to find out that naming your vineyard was good marketing. Somebody told me, and I can't verify this, that there's over 700 vineyard-designated wines in the Napa Valley right now. So I think in many ways, it's lost its original uh, meaning, and that is to identify certain plots that were very special uh, and that produced a unique Cabernet Sauvignon. But that seems like a vote of confidence on the Wagner family's part in the vineyard that you had. Was that an agreement from the beginning that they were going to do it that way? No, not at all. It wasn't. Uh, What happened was we appear down at uh, Camus Winery on a Saturday, and uh, we were due there at 2.30, and we didn't arrive until 6.30. We all had bee stings and cuts from the uh, knives nobody had ever harvested before. Uh, The fruit was in the back of five station wagons and lug boxes. We looked like Ma and Pa Kettle going to town, quite frankly. Had we have gotten there at 2.30, Charlie would not have been there. But as it was, uh, we arrived at 6.30. He was out watering his vegetable garden prior to dinner. He sauntered on over to the scales. And uh, I suffer from just about a lot of disabilities like OCD and a- I don't know. all. I've got them all. Uh, 
Uh, if I was a youngster now, I'd be heavily medicated. <laughs> but it was but before that time. I mean, it was honestly. way before that time, right. And Charlie sauntered on, and he noticed how cleanly picked the fruit was. Oh, I see. You needed yeah, it yeah. to be. When well, you picked I, it, you wanted it clean. Absolutely clean. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we almost examined every cluster at that period of time. And, and uh, he noticed the fastidiousness of with it was picked. Uh, reached into one of the lug boxes, grabbed a cluster of grapes and uh, took a chaw, spit it out second time, third time, uh, asked me what the sugars were, I think 23.6 in that period of time. And I had planned on just selling the grapes to Charlie for his Napa Valley Cuvée. And I think the price was $800 a ton. And he looked at me and said something that changed our life. And his quote was, uh, Dick, this is damn fine fruit. Instead of us just putting it into our Napa Valley Cuvée, Let's see what kind of wine it makes. And so we kept it separate, and we had the first year two barrels of wine, which is roughly 49 cases of wine. And had they ever done that before? I don't remember another Camus. No, I don't, I don't think so. I think it was a spur of the moment, like most everything else uh, uh, in my life. And I said to Charlie, Charlie, do what you want. Really, it's up to you. And uh, so we vinified it separate. The two barrels were uh, in a corner of the winery one day, and some wine critics came by. Uh, and they wrote a letter called the Underground Wine Journal. Ted Swinnerton, John Tilson, Ed Lazarus uh, were the folks. And uh, uh, they saw two barrels with in chalk the letter G written on them. And so... Uh, they asked Charlie what it was, and he said it's a nice little vineyard north of uh, St. Lena, just a little bit over an acre, and he barrel-tasted them, and uh, they showed up at our home. I had no idea about wine critics or anything of that nature, and we just had a discussion, and uh, shortly after, they came out with a, a glowing write-up on the potential of Grace Family Vineyards, and so... I guess some people have accused us of being the first cult wine, which is surprising because uh, in college, my mother, as I said, was terrified of me joining a cult. Um, there were other uh, wineries that did something similar. Stony Hill comes to mind, but I don't think that they had a private mailing list. So I think we're one of the few wineries, if not the only one I know, who has priced every bottle of wine the same each year to each customer, be it a restaurant, a wine store, or an individual. Uh, we released the 78 in uh, 81, and uh, the ego problem I had was larger than I have now, and it was the most expensive red wine out of the Napa Valley at $25 a bottle. There was one other wine in America that was more expensive. I think it was $30 a bottle, and I can't remember if it was Martin Ray or some such producer in the Santa Cruz Mountains. And then um, on the way to delivering the first case of wine to John Hogan at John Walker and Company on uh, Sutter Street, I picked up a case, uh, a couple of bottles rather, to drop off uh, tasting for John. And I'm driving into San Francisco. I said to myself, holy mackerel, you know, we, uh, we tore out the olive trees. We planted the rootstock. We budded on the Boucher Cabernet. We tended the vines. Uh, we looked after them. We did our first harvest ourselves. Uh, we drove the grapes down to Camus. We helped make the wine. We bottled it, labeled it, foiled it, boxed it, and here I'm delivering it, and they're going to get 50%? And I said, no way. It's not going to happen. So I walked into John Hogan, who I didn't know. And uh, I presented the two bottles of Cabernet. He knew the Camus label, didn't know the Grace Family Vineyards designation. I said, Mr. Hogan, there's an unusual thing. 
about this wine, and that is we don't have a wholesale price. And he said, okay, kid. He said, drop them off anyway, like that. And so I dropped them off, and he called up the next morning, and he said, we'll take all we can get. So John Walker and Company was our first commercial account. I think that our first restaurant account may well have been the Four Seasons. And Julian Nicolini, uh, who still has a few bottles of our wine at the Four Seasons here in New York City. I think that was our first commercial account. Because they used to do the California barrel tastings. That's correct. But we never participated in the barrel tastings, but they were certainly California conscious. From the beginning, it was a lot of demand. There was a huge amount of demand. You know, as I say, we got this term, I think that it was Dan Berger, the wine critic, who uh, coined the phrase cold wine. I'd never heard about it. And Dan was sitting in front of us at the Napa Valley Wine Auction one day. And I was there with my wife and he was talking to another fellow. And and he said that the Grace family was coming up for auction. And his quote was, the Grace family vineyards will be the cold wine of the decade of the 90s. And uh, that's the first time I'd ever heard the term. And that was probably in the late 80s. And that's become something that's a well-known term for a category of wines now. Well, it's a little bit absurd to be honest with you. It'll be very candid with you. There was about seven in, the, in that era. Uh, Harlan came along and, and, uh, and Screaming Eagle and, uh, and uh, Naoko de la Valley, uh, you know, at de la Valley and, uh, and other wines of that caliber. And there was about seven or eight. And uh, now uh, the claims are, I don't know how many wineries claim to be a cult winery. I don't like the word, don't like the philosophy, frankly, but I guess that's the reality. Do you think that enthusiasm was stoked by the quality of the wine or the rarity of the wine or the profile of the wine? Or what, what was it that really caught people's imagination? Well, I think that any collectible has a couple of things in uh, common. Either terrible quality from a known product or wonderful quality or excellent quality. I think we did have excellent quality. I think we do have excellent quality. I think that scarcity is another thing that certainly comes into play. And there was scarcity. You know, we've never produced much more than 500 cases of Grace Family Vineyards uh, wine. And in those days, it was less. We, uh, we expanded, uh, you know, by, uh, by 200% by planting two additional acres. But in those days, there was just one acre. And the wine sold at an immediate premium and, uh, and became almost a, a commodity for a period of time, which is sad for me. My vision for the wine being used is twofold and that is to enhance a special moment in some person's life and the second is to make people realize or aware rather that after my wife and i take out a very comfortable lifestyle the balance of the profitability of the winery goes to help our underserved sisters and brothers primarily in tibet nepal india mexico and america you donate a large percentage of the profits to our family foundation. That's correct. Yesterday at the Palm Court at the Plaza Hotel, we had five young people. Two were from uh, Dharamsala. They're Tibetan. They did very well at uh, a school in Tibet and both became Fulbright scholars. That was 11 years ago we started with them. Another, a Sherpa that we met in uh, 1992 at 14 years old, packed a lot of luggage up to the high country on the way to Everest Base Camp for us. Uh, he's now been 10 years with Russ and Daughters, and his uh, nickname is Sherpa Locks, um, a Haitian-American girl who until recently was dealing with really tough economic circumstances. Brilliant girl. She's now a student at Columbia 
And the other person was a young Mexican man who worked his way through high school and college in the Napa Valley, got a job uh, with a Spanish-speaking radio station as a reporter and was just accepted to the Columbia School of Journalism, which is a very prestigious school. There's only 200 worldwide accepted. He came nowhere near to uh, being able to afford that education. So the community rallied around him and Chuck and Daphne O'Rear, he's a worldwide known uh, photographer and ourselves and others put our shoulder to the wheel and now he's enrolled at, at Columbia. So, you know, that's the real joy right now of the winery for me. I, gosh, you know, you talk about points or something of this nature. Be great to get a hundred points. You know, uh, we got a hundred points from a couple of reviewers for our 94 vintage, but not so many critics come by. Uh, we're not interested in that. We're interested in what the sommeliers have to say and how it trickles down and how we can help younger people who are vastly underserved. To be able to change that that dynamic just a tiny bit, like one grain of sand on a vast beach is the gift that both my wife and I have received. So you wanted to take the profits that you received from something that had become a little bit maybe fetishized as a commodity and turn that into improving poor people's lives. Well, that has grown for the first two years after uh, February of 1988. I thought that our job was to raise capital for children's charities. I love children all over the world. My hap happiest moment is showing magic to children in who are underserved in our country, of which there's way too many, and underserved in other countries who are dealing with poverty, like Tibet, like Nepal, like India, uh, like areas certainly of Mexico. So that's the happiest I ever get. The winery's been a vehicle for me being able to go out and, and, and do that. Uh, you know. So the winery really, uh, you know, the esteem of it kind of caught fire, became well-regarded from the beginning. I mean, really from the beginning. Mm -hmm. I mean, young right. vines, but right. you know, all of a sudden it shoots to yeah. some stardom. Do you think, though, that it was because of the profile of the wine? I mean, like in terms of the taste, do you think that the taste was somehow different or new? Or what was it that so caught people's attention beyond the rarity? An awful lot of what's in a wine bottle is perception. It's as simple as that. And so certainly the flavors are good. Certainly it's a well-made wine, as are many some of the people in the valley that I really have compassion for are people who make a wonderful bottle of Cabernet for 50 to 75 bottles a bottle and having a hell of a time marketing it. There's so much competition out there. It's much more difficult for us, frankly, than it used to be. And any winery owner who tells you different is not being straight. So it's, part of it was when you got in. That's correct. Absolutely. Sure. Absolutely. And, and so... You eventually decide to build your own winery, mm -hmm. and what was that progression like? I mean, uh, suddenly now you have to hire a winemaker. Suddenly now it's under your label. That's right. Actually, we were having a dinner with John and Robin Lale. John is an architect, and Robin has been in the wine industry for decades and probably one of my dearest friends, and we were sitting around the table, just the four of us. And John said, with just in passing, you know, he said, you really ought to build your own winery. You've got a great reputation. You've got a great product. It's going to be harder and harder to build your winery. In and terms of the environmental regulations. In, the, in the terms valley. of cost, regulation, everything. Sure. Absolutely. And we could not build the winery right now. We would not qualify underneath the new regulations to build the winery. And uh, once again, it was a statement made in a relatively benign 
atmosphere with no great intent. And I said, you know, John, you're right. Let's get going and please design a winery for us. He did. He was the architect. And frankly speaking, I wouldn't change one thing about our winery, which is uh, 2,498 square feet. And I used to think that the logical extension of good fortune is to capitalize on that and expand, whether it's a restaurant, a wine store, a retail store, or whatever. I'm so happy that we didn't expand. We have a comfortable size right now. It's more work than you would anticipate getting it done, but also we have a group of such loyal customers. Uh, when the Nepal quake came about, we have been to Kathmandu, Nepal more than 50 times. We've been twice since the quake, and we're going again with our son, Kirk, his wife, Lynn, and our 16- and 14-year-old granddaughter, Hannah, and grandson, Will. We put out a letter to our list because I'd just come back from Nepal, and I said, look, this is a tragedy. There's over 600,000 homes destroyed, families who were, by Nepal standards, relatively affluent are living with three and four generations in tents. They can't move back to their homes. Uh, there's a huge amount of, of destruction here that's going to take decades to, can you help us? In one week, we got in $126,000 of donations. Uh, we've matched some of that, added to it from our own foundation. We're going again next month, as I said. And in order to get money to the people, we bring in cash. We take it there in cash so that no inefficient NGO nor any government can get in the way of us going to the people and making sure some of our original purchases were lumber for rebuilding, tents for temporary housing, tarpons to sleep on so they didn't have to sleep on the ground, et cetera. So yeah, it's nuts and bolts stuff. It's, uh, you know, we're, we're hands-on. So you looked at it and you said, you know, I've seen that success doesn't mean happiness, and I've certainly seen that more success doesn't always mean happiness in a commercial sense. So instead of making this an expansive, larger vineyard, more of a commercial operation, building a huge thing, instead I'm going to keep it fairly small, something my friends and family can harvest, keep it right outside the house, and my extra time, I'm going to dedicate that to charity. That's been pretty much the move. That is the mold. However, the extra time thing is a situation because I have to tell you, I retired in 2000 from the investment business and we've never been busier. And you also co-founded the Napa Valley Wine Auction, which was somewhat for charity. That's correct. Yeah, we helped uh, start it. We were a part of the original seed money, Bob Mondavi, Robin Lael. Frankly, I can't remember the others. That was in 1981 and we were intimately involved with the auction for a number of years. Um, what was the rationale and impetus there? Who decided to do that? I mean, why? Well, I think that Bob was probably, you know, the major driving force. And of course, Robin had one time worked for Bob. And uh, so I think that that was it. And I think he wanted to model it a little bit after the host beast of bone. And, uh, and we did. I remember the first two years, there was no specially prepared bottle lots whatsoever. The wines arrived in cardboard cases, and there was a group of vintners who didn't think it was such a hot idea until it caught on. In 1983 was the third auction. Myself and Smith Madrone and one other winery put in a lot that were specially prepared. We had a bottle, which a large bottle, maybe it was a Imperial, with our Camus label, Grace Family Vineyards Vineyard designation painted 
on gold leaf foil on the bottle. And because of that, it bought a premium. And uh, that started something, which, of course, I think we've gone overboard on at some period of time. And, and also, we're very interested in uh, any charity focusing not just on the grandiosity, but also on the people who receive the generosity of both bidder and donor. So it, it really seems to me that you kind of always remembered that feeling that you had as a kid where other people had and you didn't have. And then you've tried to look around you and say, who doesn't have? And if I'm doing well, mm-hmm. or we are as a community doing well, let's try to see how we can get some of that to those who don't have. Is that fair to say? That, that's true. But I've also come with, I guess, a degree of maturity. Uh, my mother said to me one time when I was 60, will you ever grow up? And I said, I hope not. <laughs> but I've also saying have is a different word. You know, What is have? I'm not sure that the entitled children that I see amongst the children of the Napa Valley and the children of Marin County and the children of, you know, uh, Hillsboro, et cetera, will ever have the joy that some of the poorest kids I've ever been with have. And because uh, the poorest kids are not entitled and they don't look upon what's next. They cherish what they have. They take uh, three and four generations. They live in the same house. They don't put the elders away in some home and visit on an occasion, et cetera. So have and have not is a very interesting redefinition in my life. And it sounds like a lot of that redefinition went into the 70s, the 80s, late 80s. You really started to think very much about your own life and your place in the bigger world. I think you're exactly right. Um, But uh, also I would say... Uh, interestingly, that it continues to this day. We've been fortunate enough to be personal friends of the Dalai Lama. We've done uh, four major events for him called Unsung Heroes of Compassion uh, in San Francisco to honor people from around the world who practice compassion and kindness. We'll only allow four affluent people. Uh, We have 50 honorees, 25 women, 25 men, because in my opinion, Buddhism is not gender equal and must become that way. Uh, They've come from a multitude of countries, and we have a celebration in their honor. This year, uh, I, I got a huge lesson from my most admired human, Father Greg Boyle of Homeboy Industries in Los Angeles, who's been doing gang intervention for over 30 years. Uh, Greg gave the final call to action at the end in front of the Dalai Lama at the end of the program in February of last year. And he made a point that has really opened my eyes further, that is, assuming they're opened at all. And he said, we don't go out to help others. We go out to find ourselves in kinship with them. What a difference. Help automatically sets up this parameter that we're going out to help others. When we go out and find ourselves in kinship with them, it's entirely different. And then we're more able to learn from them and more able to exchange with them. We've been very uh, involved with prisoner rights. The first honoree because of Alphabet was a man who spent 28 years in San Quentin for a significant offense after he got out of the Marine Corps. After 10 years as a gang member, he spent in uh, San Quentin. The next 18 years, he was a strong force for good uh, and got two advanced degrees, both magna cum laude, one from Chapman University, where our grandson just graduated. 
Uh, he committed a crime that I could have committed. And upon release, uh, he now works at the St. Helena Hospital in drug and alcohol counseling. He gives courses to DUI students, anger management. We have to give our brother, every time I look at a group of Tibetan children, Indian children, Chinese children, it makes no difference. I look at that picture and I say, you know, there could well be a Nobel laureate in that group if given a chance. So that's kind of governs a lot of what we do. To find ourselves in kinship is much different than helping our brothers and sisters. So let's talk about the period of alcoholism mm -hmm. and what your feelings were at that time. What was happening? I was a, I was a really cool alcoholic. Yeah, yeah, I really was. I was a lot of fun to be around with most of the time. I did some pretty stupid things. But, you know, I never missed a day of work. I functioned consistently throughout the whole thing. Um, but what terrified me, being the control freak I am, was that for the last two or three years of drinking, I really didn't enjoy it. But I couldn't stop. And that, I think, is the definition of, of addiction. And I... Until I got the concept of one day at a time, then it's amounted to 27 and a half plus years now. And uh, I think it can be the truth of compassion. I think things that keep us away from compassion and kindness, which I think is our true nature. Any spiritual persuasion that tries to convince us that we're bad and must come to them to get good, I cast aside immediately. I think we're born perfect. And if we can use a spiritual persuasion to stay closer to that perfection than without it, then use it to its advantage. I have three axioms. I'm, I'm kind of spouting off here a little bit, but I want to get them across because they're really simple and they're really straightforward. Number one is have the courage to be the person you really are. Go for it. And uh, number two is you don't have to understand completely to love completely. My brother and I were exact opposites. He was very introverted, very private. And at his eulogy just some months ago, that was the subject of my little talk about my dear brother, who I love dearly. You don't have to understand completely to love completely. He didn't understand my lifestyle, and I didn't understand his. And then the other one was uh, quoted to me by uh, Jack Kornfeld, the Buddhist teacher, who's a dear friend. And uh, Jack quoted uh, the biographer of Sigmund Freud, who said of Freud, isn't it amazing that such a failed human being could do so much good? I think in the Western world, we've had to, uh, uh, we've had, we've come to believe that we have to be perfect to do good. I have so many character defects, but it doesn't inhibit me from trying to help people. You know, I'm a bozo on the bus, as are all of us. Nothing more. Nothing less. So you, your family also, there was a history of alcoholism. Yes. In the family. Yes. And did that scare you at all, where things could go in your own life? No, never. No. 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 As a matter of fact, uh, yeah, my brother and I, uh, we, we, <laughs> we drank a lot. The joke was we used to spill more than most people drank. Uh, no, I, I, you know, uh, my father stopped drinking when I was very young. And um, I'm not sure he ever achieved sobriety. Uh, he stopped drinking. There's two ways to achieve sobriety. One is white-knuckling it, uh, discipline. That's a horrible way to live. The other is adopting a, a method of living that no longer makes alcohol a necessity or, or a need or anything or a compulsion. 
I had the only time I thought of taking a drink was after a 16-hour day in Nepal, six days after the earthquake, after I had been asked to leave Japan because of my friendship with His Holiness. We worked a 16-hour day, five and a half hours out in a truck filled with supplies that I rented along with a driver, a Jeep and driver as well, 10,000 pounds of rice in 50-pound sacks, lots of medical equipment, cases of water, a couple of volunteer doctors. Uh, I drove out with uh, an Indian man, Sanjay, Tibetan man, Sampton, a couple of volunteers, two drivers. We round trip five and a half hours out, five hours there. We distributed every last piece as first responders to a village that had not been reached yet. Five and a half hours back. The total cost of that trip was $2,300 to include rental of truck and driver, Jeep and driver, 10,000 pounds of rice, water, and everything. Dinner for four at some of the restaurants in New York City if you don't drink. Uh, and I was passing a bar uh, on the way to my hotel room, absolutely exhausted. And my mind said to me after 27 years, why don't you go in and celebrate with a drink? Well, I didn't. It was a thought, not a compulsion. There's a big difference. So do you think that staying busy helped you change your lifestyle? Do you think that you set up a number of tasks for yourself to accomplish, some of which seemed quite difficult, mm-hmm. so that it would be harder for you to stay in a lifestyle of drinking? No, I, I think I don't set up the tasks so much. To be really honest with you, they come to me. Yeah. It's almost like trying to find a wife or a woman trying to find a husband or a partner in either case. You could put down, I think, the top 10 criteria you want in a person and you could meet the person who has all 10 of them and nothing happens from a spiritual standpoint. And then you can meet someone who has uh, maybe one and a half of those characteristics and you fall deeply in love. So uh, I think that you can't, uh, Anne Murrow Lindbergh wrote in her book, which I love to give away. I've given away scores of them, primarily the females, but males too, a gift from the sea. And she says in relation to when you're looking for seashells on the seashore, you can't go digging for them. They're on the surface. So, you know, so many people come to to me, I can't solve their problem. I can offer help. But there's so many people dealing with stuff right now. And that's not limited to financially poor people. If I could tell you the number of families in the Napa Valley who've come to me with a problem with one of their offspring or a relative or a, or whatever, you would be absolutely shocked. We look good on the outside, all of us. On the inside, we're all the same. We compare our inner emotions to other people's outward appearances. And there's a lot of a lot of great appearances in the Napa Valley. You've had different winemakers. And yes. So how do you see the phases of Grace Family? It's very important for us to stay on top of the game. At the end of the day, my wife and I are going to be okay. If push came to shove, we have a huge asset in the winery itself. As we get older, our needs become less and less. So I have to ensure that we have the best that's available. Recently, at Helen Keplinger, our our current winemaker, uh, made some significant purchases for the winery to increase even further the quality of the wine. It's very interesting how I uh, hired uh, Helen. Um, We had five interviews. Two women and three men. I think women are 
significantly a better chance of making great winemakers, quite frankly. Sorry, guys. Well, you had Heidi Peterson Bear previously. We've had two out of four. Yeah, two out of four. Uh, and um, Helen came in, and I, she was the fifth interview. No one could tell who could make the best Cabernet from our five acres. I mean, excuse me, our three acres. Uh, and uh, uh, so at the end of the interview, which was ten, 20 minutes long, I was escorting Helen out the back, and uh, and she looked at me. She said, you don't remember when we first met, do you? And I said, uh, you know, I've seen you around town, but frankly, I didn't even know who you were. I don't know too many of the people in the wine industry, quite frankly. And uh, I have a, some memory that we had, had met prior. And she looked at me, and she said, in 1997, we met at the Kumjum Bakery at 14,000 feet in the Himalaya, which you had helped start for the benefit of the Sherpa community on the way to Everest Base Camp. I was also with Debbie Zacharias, who was a well-known wine person. She was in our group, and Helen was in another group when she was pre-med. It was a perfect karmic circle. I looked at her, I said, will you take the job? She said, yes, that was it. She's been our winemaker now for a year and a half, and I just can't tell you uh, how much I appreciate her being at our winery. So has Grace family always been a Cabernet Sauvignon 100%? Or? 100%. Never put anything into, uh, never tried to blend or do anything. I don't know how many wineries or what percent are 100%, but uh, we've been since day one. And you had the chance to change that because you did a big replant in the mid-90s. We did. In 1994, we had to pull out uh, both vineyards, the lower vineyard because of oak root fungus and the upper vineyard because of the well-known phylloxera. And uh, we replanted in uh, almost all the vineyards in uh, after 1994, so much so that in 1995, each account got one magnum of wine, whether it was Spago Restaurant or a wine store or an individual. The following year, two years, 96 and 7, we had less wine. And so I developed the first 1,000 milliliter format. And both the, the magnums of 95 and the 1,000 milliliter formats are etched and hand-painted and numbered, and we still sell the 1,000-milliliter format. You know, basically, right at, as the cold Cabernet phenomenon was really heating up in the market, Grace family didn't have much wine for the current vintages because of that replant, the way that it matches up with the vintage. That's exactly right. Right? Yeah. You yeah. know, like Screaming Eagle, first vintage is 92. Mm -hmm. So as those are starting to, you know, as, yeah. as people are talking more about Colt Cabs, the one that's the rarest to find is Grace Family, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Earlier, that's correct. Yeah, exactly. And and we had we had virtually no wine in that period of time. I think Harlan was probably the next to come along, uh, followed by Jeannie at, at uh, Screaming Eagle. Oddly enough, prior to Jeannie selling, uh, we had a couple of bottles when she would come over for dinner or we'd see it at a restaurant and something of this nature. Uh, uh, after that, I've never seen a bottle of Screaming Eagle opened. Yeah, me neither. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I remember I had everything from her era, every yeah, bottle at right. one time, but I, since I've never had a wine. No, I've never seen. I've never seen it. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's different. A, it's I a mean, commodity. Something changed. Really. Yeah, I want people to drink our wines. Yeah, yeah. I want to add to the special moments in their life, and they can also have a little bit of knowledge that a portion of their funds are going to help an underserved sister or brother somewhere. And so that played into the idea that you wanted to have your own mailing list. You didn't want to sell it through distribution. You wanted your own mailing list so that those profits could go for the mm -hmm. charity. You want to maximize the charity profits, right? That's correct. But, you know, uh, actually, we're about a third, a third, a third. And to be very candid with you and any wine re-owner who tells you it's not, it's a lot harder to sell wine today regardless 
than it was 15 years ago. The, the competition is great. The product is great. Uh, and uh, the demand has not grown as fast as the number of wineries in the Napa Valley, I promise you that, which only makes th- approximately 3% of the wine produced in California. Many people think it's 25 to 50%, but that's not the case. Did you ever want the winery to be perceived differently or the wine to be perceived differently? It looks like from the very start, it, it just took off like wildfire. Did you ever want it to be different? You know, I don't think I honestly wanted anything. You know, I just kind of like, I, I took it in stride to some degree. I mean, there was too much pride involved. It satiated my already overblown ego at that period of time. I think, frankly speaking, however, my pride in a, in a Buddhist context right now is probably at its highest level because I'm proud that we can use this as a vehicle and other people are starting to use the model. And also when we go to a charity event, uh, we have a certain uh, degree of uh, authenticity that people tend to really open their hearts and, and their wallets to correcting an ill. And that is the dramatic difference between the half and have nots. To have 9% of American children going to bed at night hungry is inexcusable in this country. And I blame the politicians. And what do you feel the changes that Helen Keplinger has made have been? Well, numerous. Equipment. Um, she is intimately involved with our vineyard manager, our son, Kirk. She is in that vineyard many more times than anybody else who's ever been involved with us. Her focus is extraordinary. Her focus on perfection. Matter of fact, I'm, uh, uh, you know, a lot of people may like me. A lot of people may not like me and that's okay. She's the only person who blows me off. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. When I go off and, and I don't mean that in a negative way at all. I love Helen and her, her husband, DJ. They're, they're terrific friends. I think they're wonderful folks. But when I go out in that winery and she's doing a task, I can tell I've got about two minutes before she says to me, basically through body language or whatever it is, I want to get back to work. I'll tell you a cute story. I was walking out there one day. We have a very buff sellerman by the name of Omar Preciado. His family's worked with us for over 30 years. And uh, I hear Omar in the winery banging away at a barrel, taking the staves uh, or taking the, the rings off in order to remove the head. And I said, man, he's walloping that barrel. I walk in and it's Helen. I think Helen weighs 110 pounds, you know, and here she is. She is what we call a black-handed winemaker. She's not sitting there in an advisory capacity somewhere. She's in there doing it in both the vineyard and the winery. We're fermenting in wood for the first time ever. We just bought two uh, cement fermenting tanks. We changed our four stainless tanks. We have a new destemmer. We have a laser sorter. Uh, the care and attention has magnified a lot under Helen's tutelage. Where do you see the future for the Valley going in terms of the market? You've implied that there's a lot more wine, that it's harder to sell, that the Valley's changed a lot somewhat in character, the people who have vineyards there, and that marketing has become more uniform and thus more difficult. Where do you see the, the area going as a whole? The more we avoid the marketing shtick, which is, you know, I understand it completely. Uh, because it's a more more competitive environment. But the more we take the longer-term approach to the wine industry, the better. Uh, One thing I've always been uh, in disagreement with is many, 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 most of the wineries release because of marketing schedule. 
we've aged our wine anywhere from a low of 19 months to a high of 40 months, which was the uh, 1980 vintage. This year, we're aging about 26 months. So we're selling in October, but not delivering until April. And the reason is that the wine deserves more time in barrel. Dick Grace has been in the wine industry for 40 years and has been living a life that seems to speak of more experience. Thank you very much for being here today. It was really an honor. I enjoyed it. Dick Grace of Grace Family Vineyard in Napa Valley. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.